This episode of Trapital is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Every artist needs a home on the internet that's not their social media page. But they also need a solution that's easy and effective. On Banzoogle, you can build a stunning website and online store in minutes. Use their customizable templates to sell your music, merch, and tickets with no commission fee. You can grow your email list, integrate your online profiles, and access their fan data to learn more about your superfans. In Banzoogle, it's home to over 60,000 musicians and has generated over $120 million in commission-free sales and counting. That's more money directly in your pocket. Trapital listeners get a special offer. Use the promo code TRAPITAL to get 15% off the first year of any subscription plan on Banzoogle. Start your free 30-day trial at banzoogle.com, promo code TRAPITAL. That's B-A-N-D-Z-O-O-G-L-E.com, promo code T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L. Or you can visit the link in our show notes. They also reference the Copyright Act of 1909. Whoa. For some context, in 1909, Harriet Tubman was still alive. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. This episode is a deep dive on the long-lasting impact of radio. Despite all of the new evolutions in music, in AI, streaming, short-form video, it's radio that has continued to live on and will continue to live on for several more years. That said, there's been considerable pullback. iHeartMedia has announced several layoffs over the past few years, Odyssey just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and most of the major record labels have considerably pulled back their promotional budgets. So we talked about how that relationship will continue to evolve in the streaming era. But we also talked about why radio can still be a good indicator for which songs are actually resonating. Once you get past the viral hits that come and go and the big first week numbers for a streaming debut, it's radio that can tell us which songs really last on given the airplay that it continues to get. But you and I both know that the songs that get considerable airplay don't always get there from the most merit-based systems. So we talk about payola, its impact on music in radio and how that's evolved. And we also talk about pop radio versus urban radio on how some of those genre definitions, despite clear success, mainstream success elsewhere, can still impact a song's ability and an artist's ability to break through. So to break this all down, I'm joined by Tati Sirisano from Media Research. We talked about how radio got to this point, where things are right now, and what it can dictate about the future, especially in this space where everyone is eager to attract more super fans and figure things out. There may be a lot that the industry can learn from how radio has curated this audience over the years. So let's dive in. All right, we're here to do a deep dive on radio, its impact in music, its impact over the years. And I'm excited to be joined by Tati Sirasano for the first pod that you and I are doing in person, which is long overdue. Yeah, and the first pod that I think I've ever recorded in person. So lots of firsts today. Very exciting. Thanks for having me as always. Of course. I wanted to do this conversation with you because we had done conversations related to this with our episodes with Pandora, but I feel like this one is 
very timely and specific because radio is still a important piece of the music industry puzzle in terms of promotion, but it's also one that has changed quite a bit. But I want to start from a personal perspective. So you and I both love music. It's been part of our lives for so long. What's your personal relationship been like with radio and how has that evolved? When I was growing up, it was definitely the way that I listened to music, I guess, like in the at least when I was a kid, like in the car going to school. I remember so many songs just being so drilled into my head, like Rihanna and like Usher was a huge radio, you know, person when I was growing up. I feel like I know every single word to confessions, like the background vocals, the ad libs, everything. Like I just remember things being sort of drilled into your head, um, but also a lot of like irritation with radio, like not being able to find the station that we wanted, like getting frustrated by what we were hearing. Um, And also as I got a little bit older and started to have a CD collection, um, just the weirdness of like getting a CD and listening to all the songs right when it came out. And then maybe a year later, there would be one of those songs promoted to radio. From there, like I moved into using, you know, my iPod and then downloading MP3s and et cetera. So it was kind of like as soon as I could get away from radio, I did because, of course, I just wanted more control. And these days I really only hear the radio if I'm like in an Uber or, you know, in a store or something. And it's interesting. It always feels a little bit surprising what's on the radio because either it's like a 10-year-old Katy Perry song, it's always a Katy Perry song, or it's often something that I don't even know. And then I'm, it's just interesting like how some, you know, one of the things we talk about is how like the mainstream cannot feel so mainstream anymore and things like that. Same. Big evolution and change over time. I think for me, Radio Sticks Out is something that was such a big part of culture in terms of how we interacted with radio, how we talked about radio when we're going to school or with friends, almost in the same way that you would talk about MTV, where the radio DJs were personalities in themselves. People would repeat the taglines as jokes to each other, walking through the hall. Your favorite artists would drop their single at the radio station, and they would always have their line like, oh, this is fabulous, and you're listening to the all-new Hot 90 or Hot 93.7, where I'm from. Jingles and everything. All those things, the jingles. And then the big events that they would have too, whether it was Summer Jam or Jingle Ball or all of the various things, that stuck out to me. The second thing that stuck out to me too was how local it was because there was so much culture around it where growing up, I thought that everyone listened to what was popular in New York hip hop because that was an extension of what we got in Hartford. But Then when I go visit my cousins that live in Orlando and I'm hearing what they're listening to on the radio, it was night and day. And that was the first time that I heard Bia Bia or that I heard Ying Yang Twins or any of those songs that eventually became mainstream because I feel like there was this moment late 90s, like very early 2000s where artists like that were really only played on a regional basis. But then by the mid 2000s, you have Lil Jon Lee side boys, you have Bone Crusher and all that. But going down there and visiting them, that was my first exposure to be like, huh, your radio is different than my radio, even though we're still listening to hip hop. And things like that really stuck out to me in a way where, as you and I've talked about, streaming changed so much of it. I now live in a city. I'm not driving around in a car as much. And I'm really only listening to radio when I'm either renting a car or um, in an Uber and someone else is listening to the radio. So the dynamic around that has shifted quite a bit. No, that's so true. Like I'm thinking like for me growing up in Miami, it was a completely different probably radio slate for a lot of it. Right. Speaking of Miami, I think about an artist like Trick Daddy, who is so popular in South Florida. I don't think that I really knew who he was Mm -hmm. until 
I'm a Thug came out, that song, and that's probably embarrassing to say, but as someone that grew up in the Northeast, you're just not going to have that much exposure to slip and slide records and everything. Yeah, like and I probably have like equally embarrassing, like not knowing, you know, anything about New York hip hop at the time, so... Yep, Mob Deep was always the comparison I would like bring back to people. I'd play some deep cut Mob Deep song that I know would like go wild if you played it in the tri-state area, but if you played it in the South, it just wouldn't connect in that way. The other interesting thing too about radio is that even though you and I have had this shift, it still accounts for a very large share of ear and a large share of audio. You look at some of these reports from Edison and some of these other places, it still accounts for a larger share of ear, as they call it, compared to ad-supported streaming platforms. I think some of those data points probably need a little bit of context because it doesn't include things that also have your share of ear and eyeballs like TikTok or YouTube or even some of the paid services and things like that. But it is something that sticks out because even with all of the changes, especially post-pandemic or people not commuting less, working from home, there still is a large portion of people in the U.S. that the main way that they hear audio consumption is through the radio. And we tend to forget that or sort of underestimate the impact even I mean, now, it, like, that wasn't a surprise to me because of the context of my job and, like, studying this stuff. But I feel like even when I first started at Media and was doing all this, you know, research and understanding how big each segment of the market is, it was really surprising to me and looking at, like, our consumer surveys and how many people listen to radio. I think it's something that's sort of underestimated, um, both in the size and also the revenue. Like, I know um, Daniel Eck has brought up in earnings reports before, like, the radio industry and, you know, the the advertising behind it is still bigger than the entire music streaming business and things like that. Um, and I think part of the way that we sort of explain that, and this is sort of me paraphrasing Mark, Mark Mulligan, but is, you know, when you have these technological shifts at the point where something starts to really like tip over into the mainstream. So with streaming, you have this really rapid acceleration of that turnover, and then you have a rapid decline in the old format. But what follows is a much longer, steadier decline of the people that are sticking around, like the people that are still listening to the radio, the people that are still buying print newspapers, for example, you know, like that is that is a good example of like how long it can take. Radio is still a big part of a lot of people's lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not like slowly and sort of inevitably declining over time. And I think the other thing that you sort of alluded to is the measurements. Like, I think there's a lot of um, feeling that radio's metrics just aren't really up to speed with today. Like, it's still a lot about reach. It's not really about, like, weekly active users. They're still using, like, the, what is it called? The people meter, something, the PPM, like some, I don't know, like, actually having people, like, write diaries of what they listen to. And it's not necessarily that accurate or as accurate as it could be. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, I guess. That long tail piece is key because looking at different mediums, they have different decay rates depending on the medium too. And radio isn't nearly as steep as, let's say, pay TV and cable compared to streaming. And that was something that really stuck out, like doing some doing some research for this episode, because part of the reason, or just to share some stats there before we get into it, the listenership decline, at least from what we saw from some of the data here, is to show that in radio, it was, it's been 10% over the past couple of years. But if you compare that to your cable channels, that's 20%. So that was going to suck out where even though radio seems like, any, not even seems like, is an older format than even cable TV, it's not 
being dropped off nearly as fast as cord cutting. And I think there's a few reasons there that stuck out. And one of the things that people talked about was, A, the fact that radio is a low-cost business and you're still able to provide a good quality product at a low cost in a way where I think it's harder for a cable TV channel or non-SVOD um, channels can do that. But I think the second thing too is that I think the difference then in terms of the output is also quite, it's bigger in video where I think that the difference between a show like, let's say a succession or a very popular streaming show and your network drama on CBS, right. the gap between those two shows from a quality perspective, in my opinion, I know this is biased, is quite bigger than a radio show like This American Life compared to the top podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't think there's quite as much of a difference there. And that's because you can still do audio fairly cheap. And on that point, like radio hasn't really been replicated necessarily in podcasts. The best podcasts are, are doing this well, but I think there's sort of like also a quality issue with like audio storytelling, as you well know, is like a very specific craft in a very specific format. And like, I don't think that necessarily like the best radio shows have been accessible somewhere else. But with TV, it's different because you do have better quality of shows. I would also argue, I don't know <laughs> who's like the, you know, whatever, um, listening to this. But I yeah, I do think like there's that there's that difference. I was also going to bring up smart TVs because smart TVs have been adopted relatively quickly. I was just kind of going through some of our consumer data and about like a little over half in English speaking markets of consumers have a smart TV. So it's just kind of part of it. Part of the experience is you're streaming. And I think people think of SVOD as like cheaper alternative, even though now that I'm paying for like Hulu and Netflix and HBO Max and all of these, it's not necessarily any cheaper, but it sort of tricks your brain into thinking that. And it almost feels like easier. I feel like the process of signing up for pay TV is just like a different beast to people. So I understand why like the S transition has been a lot quicker than maybe the decline of radio. From my own experience, having done interviews on different platforms, I've done them on radio shows like NPR. I've done them on TV shows like some of the morning shows and stuff like that. The reach has always been the biggest if I've done something on radio. Like the amount of people that reach out, even people outside of the industry, and that's when it clicks to be like, okay, people are still listening. And I know that's completely anecdotal. This is one person talking no, from their thing. No, but that's a great example. That sticks out more than any of the things and even more than any of the print publications, too. Like, yeah, radio is the place where people reach out and be like, oh, I heard you on NPR. No, this is so anecdotal and also has to do with NPR. But I was on an NPR radio segment once. I was talking about TikTok, actually. <laughs> and I was so excited. I love NPR. And uh, it, it aired. And like 10 minutes later, this girl I went to middle school with texted me and was like, I just heard you on NPR. <laughs> so if that's not a great example of what you're saying. It's so interesting because you've experienced this too. Do you listen to NPR like on a regular, like this, like in the background? Yeah, chilling? somewhat. Yeah. Okay. I was doing it online. Okay. Because it's not something I do, but then it made me realize, okay, people people our age do this. Yes. My old roommate, I just remember hearing it in the morning. Like she was always listening to it in her room and stuff. And yeah, I think it is more prevalent than maybe we expect. It's so fascinating. Great. We love NPR. Yeah. <laughs> the next piece we want to dig into is the relationship between radio and the music industry, because this has been such a fascinating tug of war over the years. What we're about to get into reminds me of the YouTube episode we did where we talked about how out of date some of the laws that YouTube was able to rely on, like the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Well, in radio, it stems even further back because 
one of the biggest tug of wars that's still an ongoing debate with radio is whether or not people should or shouldn't be compensated. And when I say people, I'm specifically talking about the artists because the way that it works right now, the songwriters and the publishers get compensated through the PROs from radio play, but the performers and the recording artists do not. So the master side of the recording does not make any money. This is currently something that has been up for debate, but the National Association of Broadcasters, one of the big lobbying firms that advocates in support of radio, one of the big things that they say is that one, if you were to start compensating those performers and rights holders, the master recording rights holders for their music, the industry would tank. But two, they also reference the Copyright Act of 1909. Whoa. <laughs> for some context, in 1909, Harriet Tubman was still alive. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absurd. Even if radio didn't exist either. So it's bizarre. Even if they were referencing a 2009 Copyright Act, yeah. it would be out of date. Do you know how the music industry made money in 1909? Sheet music? Exactly. Okay. They were selling sheet music. So it's one of these things that's bizarre, but that's one of these things that has been so baked in, and it's been this ongoing challenge. And that challenge has stemmed to so many of the other debates we've seen with why the music industry had issues with MTV and VH1 and others that didn't want to pay to air. And MTV, many ways, used the same argument that radio did, and radio saw itself as promotion, did not see itself as a sales outlet in that way. And that's something that they were able to hold on to. But it's such an archaic rule that has still stayed true today where music is monetized completely differently. Yeah. And we should add that the US is still, I think, the only country that does it this way. But yeah, it does remind me so much of even like just the social media relationship with the music industry and like TikTok and this age old battle of like, who needs the other more? Because radio is saying, you know, you need us to promote your music. And then the labels are saying, well, you wouldn't exist if you didn't have music to play on your stations. Both sides need each other, but no one wants to admit that. Right. Because the non-music radio station do not generate nearly as much revenue for the iHeartMedias or for the Odysseys, and we'll get into them in a bit, but do not generate nearly as much revenue as the other ones do, unless you are doing it the public radio route where you're asking for donations. And that's a completely different business model in a lot of ways. And most of those places outside for maybe some of the college stations or independents don't really ask for revenue directly. It was interesting for me, like going back and thinking about the history of radio and how it really led to nationally popular stars, which is now what the entire record business is built on, is creating these these stars. Um, and, you know, just just to remind ourselves of that history, I guess, that before it, it was, a, it was a lot more regional, a lot more local. And the music business as it exists today, like, wouldn't really exist in the same structure if it wasn't for radio. Right. Thinking about like, Dick Clark, for instance, yeah. right, being one of those early people. And then even some of the more recent talk shows that we've had in recent decades, whether it's your Howard Stearns or Elvis Duran and people like that, that did become known on it. But also the artists themselves, right, like became this pathway to these mainstream artists that didn't exist in the same way anymore. You didn't have this just like, even as much as we're saying that these stations had, you know, different repertoire locally, it still led to the ability for one song to dominate radio stations across the U.S. in a way that didn't really exist before. Hearing you say that it makes me think of, you know, that Tom Hanks movie, That Thing You Do? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's exactly what that is, right? The name of the movie is really named after the song. And yeah. this guy finds this group of high schoolers and then plays that one song on the radio. And then they're the biggest group. In the yeah, exactly. That's a great throwback. <laughs> and this relationship is so interesting, too, because it's clearly changed a lot in the past 15 years now that streaming's taken over in a lot of ways. Radio still matters. However, the record labels have shown that they are cutting back considerably because they've cut back their promotional departments and promotion was where they had a lot of their radio spend and their headcount focused in. And we've even seen a lot of those executives that used to lead promotion either need to switch functions or they've been let go from their particular labels. But it's interesting because streaming in many ways, I know we've talked about this before, but because streaming was forced to pay royalties to the performers and to they were able to be bucketed into the sales category or now the revenue category of the record labels and not be on the promotion side. So when that happens, it constricted things even more. So now you're just seeing more and more cutbacks. And there's clearly still influence that radio has, especially with some of the genre things that we'll, we'll get into. But that's part of that disconnect there. Where we, are, we are seeing that continue to shrink along with the layoffs that we're seeing at the conglomerates that then trickle down to each of these radio stations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just how uh, just radio's role in the promotion cycle has totally flipped, right? It used to be that the song was made a hit on radio and then that that trickled to streaming. And now it's the opposite. It's the songs bubble up on streaming and then radio has become, I've heard people refer to it as like phase two or like it's the last effort to sort of extend the song's life cycle, whereas it used to be at the beginning. And I'm sort of getting ahead of myself here, but it reminds me actually of what's happening now with streaming and social media because streaming used to lead social media and now social media leads streaming. So I feel like we're actually in the midst of radio's long-term decline. We're also seeing streaming's long-term, like so far, sort of starting to decline in its, um, you know, being able to propel culture where it's more so this what reacts to culture rather than driving it. So that's interesting. But I do think that labels need more pathways to the mainstream. As we've talked about, it's kind of been hard to create hits. And so I think that is one way that uh, radio is still very valuable is that it's the only place that has song scarcity. Like you don't have that on on streaming. You don't you, know, you need you need a, a space that has like limited songs on it. And one thing that we haven't really talked about um, that's really important is just the dominance of in-car radio listening and how like that's just still, you know, it's built in. It's built into your car a lot. Uh, even though we think of, oh, yeah, totally all mod all new cars have the ability to stream. A lot of them have Apple's CarPlay. You know, there's so many older models on the market that maybe don't or it's not as it's not as good. So there, there still is that like segment to tap into, I guess. But the role or where it fits in the promotion cycle, I guess, is what is what has almost changed the most. I want to talk about both of those things. The promotional cycle piece, really great point because I've heard it being fanning the flames. One, it was the radio station was what you put out and then hopefully the CD that you're selling can capture some of those flames and now it's the exact opposite, which is, which is what you're saying. But now I feel like when I'm listening to music, I'm doing it in a way to, or when I'm listening to the radio specifically, that gives me an idea of like what's actually sticking that's one thing that true. I've started to try to catch on to because it's hard to do that in streaming because everything has a big release week as you and I have talked about in past episodes, but then it can kind of drop off after that. However, it may drop off on that platform, but that still doesn't tell you, okay, what's actually clicking. 
there in other mediums. So when I turn on the radio and I still hear Doja Cat songs from Planet Her, I'm like, okay, this is clearly sticking, right? Or if I'm still hearing future nostalgia songs from Dua Lipa, that's clearly sticking. And I think that it's harder to do that in streaming because even if a song is on a playlist, whether it's editorial or algorithmically driven, there's an aspect of that that can feel a bit more push, like it's forced. And even though in radio, there clearly is a program director that's making decisions about what gets played and deciding things the same way. And I know that radio has plenty of challenges with this that I know we'll, we'll, we'll get into, but there's still an aspect of this that says, okay, if they weren't playing this, they need to respond to the people in some type. No, but it's interesting because it's, yeah, it's like hard to tell sometimes where that, like when you say, oh, you st- you're still hearing Planet Her, so it must be sticking. Is that because radio programmers are responding to people still wanting to hear the song or is it just that they're ramming it down our throats still and like people are keeping the station on so they keep going with it? You know, it's hard to tell like what is being pushed to the audience rather rather than the other way around. And it's probably a good point for us to just talk about payola. Such another antiquated term. I don't even know why it's called payola. Well, actually, I do. It's from the origin of where that suffix ola was used to describe a lot of things, but that's clearly stuck with it. But we're talking about the unauthorized and illegal form of paying for a song to be put on the radio and getting airplay, but not clearly disclosing that, which is a challenge in a lot of social media in a lot of ways and something that streaming has had its own flavor with, but radio has had these challenges over the years. One of the most obvious versions of this that in many ways has been outlawed to some extent, but some of these things can still happen is when the record label leans on or buys expensive gifts or does particular things for the for the radio station and then they in turn expect to get more airplay because of that. But then there's other certain things that you'll see trade-offs And a lot of this still happens in other forms of the industry where, okay, the artists that are going to perform at these festivals, whether it's your jingle balls or your summer jams, are they being paid for that? Not directly, but is them performing and showing up at your jingle ball so that you can sell more tickets, then give you a bit more incentive that when they drop their new album three months from now, you're going to give them more airplay? More likely. Like, I mean, that's just influence in sales and enterprise sales and business and how things work. But a lot of those things influence the industry. And that's been something that's happened for years. And even more recently, I was doing some research for one of the for 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 another big episode that I potentially have in the works. But there is one big artist from the 90s that we all know is a household name. Her record label was I just gave away the gender, but whatever Um, her. Her record label was essentially discounting the single sales of, you know, when you can go to like FYE or Sam Goody, you could like buy the single for like two or three dollars. They're essentially selling that for 50 cents. So they're severely undercutting that, selling that at a discount relative to everything else. And the pure purpose of that was that if you sell that at a discount, that then drives up the sales. And if someone sees that a song is being driven up the sales on the charts, then the radio feels like they have to play it because then you can't ignore the fact that this is another number one hit so it's an artificially created number one hit in that way not necessarily an organic one and then now you have all these flavors where 
especially when Clubhouse was at its peak, where there are several well-known artists. I heard it more so uh, R&B and hip-hop artists, but now one of the flavors is they'll pay someone that used to work at a record label, let's say it's a consultant or someone like that. Um, Aubrey O'Day from Danny D. Kane spoke about this, how they would pay one of these consultants to work their record. So the person used to work in the industry, they used to know like what happens and you pay them and they use their influence to push your record in a particular area. And sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't, but rates could be as high as $160,000 to try to get on pop radio or $60,000 to get on urban radio. So that's one flavor of it. The other flavor of it more recently, you have these um, playlist push companies where you pay them and they help you guarantee placement to get on X playlist. So payola's had many different shapes and forms. Let's take a quick break to introduce our new segment, the Chartmetric Stat of the Episode. This is in partnership with our friends at Chartmetric. We are introducing a new stat that is relevant to the episode topic at hand. And in this week's episode, we did a deep dive into the top artists who get global airplay on radio. And a lot of the names were artists that we were very familiar with, but there are two names that stuck out. And they stuck out because these are artists that are not even in the top 20 on Spotify's monthly listeners. The first is Tate McRae, who is currently 39th for Spotify monthly listeners. She's a relatively new artist, so not too surprising. But the one that really stuck out is Luke Combs. He's not even in the top 300 for top artists with Spotify monthly listeners. A lot of that's because of country music. It's a genre and its artists haven't necessarily performed as highly when it comes to Spotify monthly listeners. It's a genre and their fan base weren't as quick to adopt streaming as hip hop and pop and other genres. But this is an interesting stat to look at and the numbers backed it up. Let's get back to the episode. Do you see like labels paying TikTok influencers and stuff like that as a form of payola? Or do you see it as like, sorry, this is like a very charged question. I, no, I don't actually mean to get your, you know. Yeah. I don't expect to have a big opinion, but I think that's something that has been brought up that I'm curious. Like, do you think that that is also similarly problematic or is that just like marketing? I don't know. And that's where these lines do get quite gray. I'll be honest. I mean, even with some of the examples that I shared, is it wrong to pay someone in order to do this? Is it wrong to pay a influencer or an expert to help push your record in exchange for something? Is that really different than using a value add distributor? When I say value add, like a distributor that adds more value than let's say like DistroKid, not in a bad way, but I think their business is more so low cost. Here's, you know, we'll put it up. But some of these other distributors that charge more because they have connections, isn't that the same as some of these things where you're either paying a TikTok influencer or you're paying a former industry executives to help push your record. Like yeah. that's all the same, right? I think what, what is it? The FCC that regulates this? I think yeah. what they, what they would say is like, it's it, what matters is whether the consumer knows it's an ad. Like it's, it's an ethical, if it's like, it's put out as just, you know, the radio programmer is just choosing this song when in actuality they've been paid for it. Um, but yeah, I think kind of like going back to what you were saying before the, um, the other issue with all of this is that there isn't really like an incentive for anyone to stop or to pull away from these practices because unless everyone else stops, it's to your disadvantage. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, 
kind of working for some people on both sides. The, the station is getting money. The label is making hits. Um, and if they even if they view this as unethical, if they don't do it, they might not get their song played. So I think it's like a I guess it's a it's a kind of complicated issue to solve, especially because, as you mentioned, so much of this is not as um, clear and direct. Sometimes it's just, oh, I got you tickets to the show. Wink, wink, you know, um, and not like here's a check for you to play the song. So it's tricky. Right. Yeah. And that's where I know that with lobbyists, gifts have been such a big thing because that yeah. to try to outlaw the here, the tickets to the show, wink, wink I mean, type of it thing. It reminds me but, of like in like when I was a journalist, there was always this like, you know, you get tickets to a show and then you feel pressured to write about it and stuff like yeah. that. And I think it's it's similar. It, it affects every industry in a different way. Right. Or I mean, I don't know if this happens at your work, but the amount of times where someone sends like, oh, here's a Christmas gift. Thanks to us. Mm -hmm. Right. Like. Yeah. I mean, they, the Christmas tip clearly doesn't come with a check for coverage or favorable things if something happens, but there is sort of a, oh, hey, you know, love what you do here, you know, keep us in mind type thing. Like it's, so it's, it, it's quite a gray area in that way. And I do think it's been interesting to hear more and more people speak out about this, whether, as I mentioned, whether it is, you know, the Aubrey O'Day from, um, Danny D. Kane or Joyner Lucas had spoken about this. There was this infamous clubhouse um, room where he was talking about, I think he paid Karen Silva, who had worked in um, the music industry and was had some debates about whether or not the money was used in best ways and things like that. But again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay for marketing. It's it's such a tough thing, but we could, we could definitely go on about this. But I guess one thing that I do think about with this in general, though, is that regardless of whether or not you're paying for it or not, people are going to resonate and people are going to connect if a song hits or if a song doesn't. And I think a lot of that has to do with the audience makeup that's on radio, because we talk a lot about how there's passive listeners in radio, but there's also active listeners, too. Because you have the people that will call into the radio station when they're trying to do some giveaway prize or something like that. You have the people that will buy concerts to particular things and the people that tune in for the hot 8 at 8 countdown or whatever it is. And I know the data isn't the best, but you at least have some type of data metrics that can show you, okay, is your data peaking at particular points? How many of the listeners that you do have, how many of them are buying tickets to these shows? How many people are on average are calling in? So you may not have the specific data, but I can at least give you some reference point of what percentage of the people are likely to do this thing or do that thing. And that's one thing that I think radio has had. And part of that probably comes with the culture that it creates. And I think it ties back to things that you've written about too, in terms of streaming, trying to take or adopt certain things that come from radio. And I feel like this is kind of an example of that when now everyone's talking about super fans and how does radio and how does streaming attract more super fans. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating to me how much streaming looks like radio today. I mean, we literally have radio stations. We have the date. Your day list is almost like that. We have, um, I remember Spotify came out with something that was like, a, I forget what it was called. It was like podcasts and music together and it was designed for the commute. And it's like, obviously, what are they targeting? Radio. Um, and yeah, it's interesting how streaming kind of pivoted from starting as like saying here choose your music you don't have to listen to what people decide on the radio anymore to now just offering so much more of a lean back experience but i think that does show that there is something actually that people want out of radio that people do often not want to have to choose all the music they want some sort of curation 
Um, but I think what has been left behind um, is that engagement and are those personalities and, and you know, the – it's interesting. I never thought about the idea of an active radio listener, but you're right. There are active radio listeners, the people that call in and stuff like that. Um, that aspect of it hasn't really translated over and – also, the way that um, Spotify's radio-like features happen now are so individualized, there isn't really like a – it really isolates you into your own uh, for you page and every you know algorithm and stuff like that. So um, you're kind of losing some of those features of radio that maybe people do crave um, in addition to just the, the passive lean back listening. Which reminds me of – what radio is selling itself. The people that work at the radio stations and that work in this business, they've always talked about how they're selling companionship because most of the time that people are driving, they're likely in the car by themselves. And when they're in the car by themselves, they're turning on. And it's not just that they want to hear the songs on the radio. It's this host that they've developed this parasocial relationship with. And the AI DJ is not going to do that. (laughs) Sorry. It is not. (laughs) And that's the thing that's tough, right? It's it's just not there. And even shows like Delilah and entire movie premises like Sleepless in Seattle are built off of that premise of radio being that companion for you. And in some ways, broadcast TV and cable TV had some of this as well, right? Because you turn on the station and it's there. And the same way that radio works, you can maybe go into school or work the next day and talk with someone. And even though you were alone when you experienced that, you could connect on that same thing with someone else because they also watched the show that was on at 8.30 last night, or they were also driving in their car, listening to the hot 8 at 8 countdown when someone said this thing. Like there's a shared culture around that, which going back to the individualized nature of SVOD or of DSPs with audio music streaming, it just doesn't exist in that same way. I almost feel like the better corollary for it is um, – I'm trying to think of a good example. Like uh, like the breakfast – the is it the breakfast club? Yeah. Um, and, With Charlemagne. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like um, th- these shows that kind of have a – also have a YouTube, even like like Joe Budden and like like Chicken Chop Date. Like I, I feel like these interview shows, these chat shows are sort of almost a better corollary for where radio has gone – in digital than streaming or podcasts are because they do have at least like those personalities and that aspect of it where um you do you might you might you and your friend have seen the same you know new interview episode and it's like this water cooler moment that you're talking about that's something that i think the breakfast club did very well both with the radio product and with the video product too because they had the station um Power, Power 105, and they were able to create this show. In a lot of ways, Power 105 was often seen as the little brother network compared to Hot 97, at least in terms of New York hip hop. But then they come out really strong with The Breakfast Club, and you were able to create a lot of that same dynamic. And I know Charlemagne has talked about this too, where it was him being part of the attraction too for people wanting to see those interviews because back especially when things really started to take off like 10 12 years ago we just hadn't seen that in that type of way there were always wild radio shows like star and buck wild like in the 2000s and stuff but i do think that for the internet era there was something there so they were able to capture the radio audience because they did that and then they got syndication for the new york show and all of these other markets across the country 
and they were also able to expand well with the YouTube product as YouTube was growing and growing as well. So one ended up benefiting the other, which then helped the radio show, which then helped the YouTube and the clips and everything else. And then they simulcast as well by releasing things on the podcast and the Revolt Network. And Yeah, and they own most of these distribution channels too. And like they have an app that I think people, some people do actually use. Like I think a lot of... Um, Radio trying to digitize itself has struggled with getting people to like use another app because why would they? They'd much rather just have it already be on whatever, wherever they stream music. But I feel like iHeart is in a unique position of actually being able to get some traction through that. Um, but yeah, I know you want to talk about them as a company too, like in a larger sense, maybe. Right. Because it's, they've definitely been a fascinating company where. Bob Pittman, CEO, a lot of the thesis was let's bring together all of these localized businesses. And in some ways, we saw Live Nation do something similar with how it brought together the localized events promotion business. iHeart did that in a lot of ways for radio. And I do think a lot of it made complete sense. You had these stars, let's put them on a national platform, whether it is making sure that if the world wants to hear Charlemagne, then making sure that he can get everywhere else and in that type of way. But that business, like many others in audio, has had its own struggles where iHeart has had layoffs and they've tried different things to modernize. And I believe that Pittman had said in a few recent interviews that he expects the digital side of the iHeart media complex to overtake the revenue eventually from the radio advertising side, which probably isn't that surprising just given the way that things are going, but it's still a massive radio business, but that's just the way things are going. So we've seen how that works in the iHeart side, but then the second biggest radio conglomerate, Odyssey, just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy this week. And they also own a lot of these shows. And it was just as recent as 2017 that Odyssey had acquired CBS Radio. So that even shows how much has changed there because I think a lot of the thesis at that time was that, yeah, streaming, it's doing its thing, but they still haven't quite figured out how to make money and we still trump them when it comes to generating ad revenue and you still got to push your record here. But it's a very different world six, seven years from now where, yes, part of that's true, but it goes back to what you said earlier where um, radio is no longer the place that you promote and then it fans the flames for everything else. You're putting your songs on radio to hope that you can push some of the traction that happens from streaming and it just completely changes things. Yeah. No, I, I think the the challenge for a lot of these radio companies is – so if you take like iHeart and all of the directions that's going with podcasts and also having that on the radio and putting a YouTube show and they even have – I think they have like talk shows that are with like TikTok influencers and stuff like that. Like they're really trying to bring together all of these types of audio. But the challenge for radio I think is if they do want to try and reinvent the, themselves for this new generation – that also means you have to alienate those older listeners that are still hanging on to the format that we talked about earlier that are the reason that the ship is afloat because what these these things that you're pivoting to they're not they're probably not going to like because the reason that they're still with this is because they don't want it to change otherwise they would have switched to streaming or something else by now so i think that's the challenge is you kind of have to take that leap and try and reinvent yourself but it means that you're just going to have to probably accelerate the decline of the audiences that are keeping you up. And the thing that 
works has worked so well in radio's favor, which is why it hasn't declined nearly as fast as some of these other legacy mediums, is that the friction is still so low compared to all these other things from the user perspective. Yeah. You turn on the car and it you can immediately turn it to some station, press scan, and then it'll find a radio station there for you. If you want to plug in your if you want to listen to uh, Spotify, you got to sync up your phone to the Spotify account. You got to figure out how to work this interface in this car. You got to pick your, something to watch. Exactly. To listen to. Yeah. yeah. If it's your own car, fine. You probably figured it out at this point. But there's all those things. And then there's the picking something to listen to. You need to like make a decision. And as easy as <laughs> that may seem, it's the same reason why we can stare at our Netflix screen for 15 minutes saying, oh, there's nothing on when there's thousands <laughs> of things that are on the channel. It's that same information overload. And really, you have to go drop something off or you got to go go to this friend's house and you want to be there in half an hour. Like, that's not what you're trying to do. You just want to go there and can you map something easy? So how do you have a product that modernizes but can still offer that that doesn't overcomplicate it and i think that's part of that balance for radio yeah because i think that's actually a theme that has come up in a lot of the podcasts we've done together is convenience is what wins out convenience is really the winner at, at the end of the day for a lot of these formats so that's a good lesson to take away i guess and i think too we talked earlier about how so many people want to only listen to the music that was popular when they were in middle school and or when they were in high school or when they were like early 20s age. Radio has even adopted to that in a lot of ways because when I was growing up, there were no old school hip hop radio stations, at least in the Hartford area. Now there are several of them in every city that I go to because they are trying to reach that demographic. When I was growing up as well, there were several alt-rock radio stations that played new grunge, old grunge, and all of that. I go back to home and turn on the radio. They're still playing that same music from the 90s and the 2000s. It's not like they're playing modern-day rock. They're clearly ad adapting there. And oldies, those stations, oldies still means songs from the 60s and 70s. It's not like, yeah. okay, now you know, 30 plus years later, oldies now means 90s and 2000s or 90s and 80s. No, it does not. It still means that. So if someone does just want to listen to Mamas and the Papas or Motown or the Righteous Brothers, the easiest place to do that is for them to turn on the oldies station and do that as opposed to figuring out, okay, let me log into Spotify. Let me make sure they know that I'm a baby boomer by my preferences so that the algorithm can get me more of those playlists. That just sounds like a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's those stations are going to be available for you anywhere. Like if you rent a car and you drive out to Arizona, you know, you're, you got, you got someone's playing sweet child of mine, you know, like you can always find those, those stations wherever you are. And so, yeah, I think people kind of just go back to that and there's the nostalgia factor too. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And that's where I don't know if you have any thoughts or ideas, but I often think, what does the time horizon look like? And I see it being something where you're more likely to cut costs on what growth and things like that may look like and really dividing the business between kind of how iHeart has does it. iHeart has done it. You have the radio side of the business where, okay, let's treat this like a harvested product and let's just milk this for as long as it goes. And if we can keep our costs low, then the business can operate as is. But then how do we modernize by having the digital side of the business? And I think that's how you ultimately end up doing it yeah. in this way. And if Odyssey does get bought by another company, 
they'll probably take an approach and do it in that same type of way. I do kind of wonder, and there's probably an answer for this that has to do with like power and relationships and whatever, but I do sometimes wonder why there isn't just like a radio part of Spotify. Like Spotify wants to be the home of all audio. Why is there no radio? Like similar to, you know, with Apple Music and having Beats One Radio and things like that. I feel like it would actually be a really natural fit and it would be a differentiated experience rather than necessarily competing. Um and that it and, and it could be a little bit more not personalized to you, but maybe there could be many stations or you know, many types of genres or sort of scenes. Um, and you could then have what people want of the lean back passive behavior that they're getting from streaming, but you could add the personalities, you could add the engagement, um, you could drop a new song through the radio station and make it an event. Like I, I sort of feel like there's a there's a place for it, and there's also a place for that song scarcity that we've been talking about, that radio is really the only place that has it. Um, so I think that would be interesting if, the, if these stations sort of syndicated their shows to streaming. I don't know what that would look like from a business perspective because then obviously their plan of not having to pay royalties goes out the window, but like that's been an interesting idea to me. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense because I know that the DSPs and the streaming specifically does have its radio product where I know that Spotify does have its personalized radio playlists. But again, it's personalized and there still is an on-demand nature to it where you do have to turn it on. But it sounds like what you're saying is if there is some deal in place to be able to, okay, here is the tab within Spotify to listen to Power 105. Here's the tab to listen to Hot 97 or Z100, what it would look like. And I think the issue probably would come to like what you're saying is that if there is a share of listening on that platform, that doesn't result in more money being put in the pocket of Spotify or the rights it. holders. I don't think the record labels would go for it. I think that's exactly what it is. The records, yeah. the 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 rights holders are already angry enough that they're not getting paid for what's already on radio. It's like now you want this to take right. up more. They'd be fighting this just as strong as they're fighting click farms. And <laughs> you're absolutely right. My dreams are shot, but no, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think we need like maybe fewer on demand experiences. Like I feel like we we need more of these scarce just happens once. If you're not tuned in. You didn't hear it. I think we need more of that. I think people crave it um, because when everything is available on demand whenever you want it, it's no longer valuable. I think people want those experiences that are scarce. And I think that's part of the reason live has come back so in such a big way. It's like if you didn't catch the Formation Tour, if you didn't catch the Eras Tour, the Renaissance Tour, it's gone. Like that product is gone. You can no longer consume that product. Yeah. And I think about um, a group like Salt. Do you know Salt? Yeah. Yeah. And how they've really made um, ephemeral experiences like a big part of their brand. Like they'll they'll release an album, but if you don't buy it on Bandcamp in 30 days, it's gone forever. They'll play a live show and play an album for the first and only time. Like I think that that's something that people are actually craving. I got to give Will Page credit for Salt because he had to cut one of our podcast episodes short because he was going to a Salt concert. Wait, really? I'm so jealous. (laughs) God damn it, Will Page. (laughs) This was like a month or two. This was like a month or two ago. They had some big show. It was right before. He must have been going to the one in London. That's what it was. Yeah, Yeah, it was that one. I got it. I got to talk to him about that. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I do want to talk about that I think radio does still play an important role with, and especially in terms of adding to the lifeline of songs is 
how radio still segments certain songs and certain genres that do get impacted by that. And there was a great study that was done by um, Elias at Billboard. This was a couple of years ago. It was pre-pandemic, but he looked at R&B and hip hop artists and their likelihood of getting on pop radio and how pop radio was still huge because it just reaches a larger radio of listeners. This point, we're talking about the Z100s and channels like that in their respective areas. They reach a larger percent of listeners than um, the quote unquote urban radio stations do like your Hot 97s or your Power 105s. But the breakdown was fascinating because he said back in the 90s and even the early 2000s, a lot of hip hop artists had a much better, a much easier time getting airplay on pop radio than they have in the last 15 years. And it's been this interesting dynamic where songs like Bodak Yellow by Cardi B or Bad and Bougie by Migos or Mask Off by Future did extremely well, either the top of the Billboard charts or very close to it, barely charted, if at all, on pop radio. And this then goes back to some of the decisions of program directors, and he was able to get some fascinating quotes in there about how they still had issues about playing a song like Trap Queen, even though it felt like it's the biggest song of the moment where they're like, oh, well, we don't want to upset our listeners if we're playing Trap Queen before Pink and Katy Perry or whatever it is. And when we're talking about fanning the flames of making sure that you're reaching an audience, that stuff matters because there's a whole demographic, especially at that late to that late 2010s era where not everyone was listening to music streaming as much as they are now and how certain songs still were held back. And this is even after hip hop was officially declared the most popular genre of music. So pop radio still had a lot of that stranglehold there. And there's a few reasons why where they think it or some of the data show that it especially impacted um, female artists as well, like Cardi B and it also was something that has just continued to live on. So when I think about hip hop specifically and R&B specifically and how some of those artists where they can still reach new listeners they may not have if they're not going to get on Z100 and stuff like that, how that can still be a challenge for them. Totally. And it feels like um, a lot of these biases are sort of built into the format and the way that they're programmed. Like um, if you're... I feel like the conventional wisdom of these stations is like if people hear something that's foreign to them or doesn't or is unexpected, rather than being interested, they're just going to change the channel. And similar to streaming with radio, it's like you don't have your listeners locked in. You have to keep them listening every second because they could switch to something else. And so I think that has pushed um, radio programmers to be just like very safe. And also if you're programming for the mainstream, even if that is the mainstream of a of a region or a locality and not, you know, nationally, you're, that still means that you're, you're going for something that is bland enough to appeal to everyone, um, but won't, won't, you know, make anyone change the channel. Um, and that's not to let anyone off the hook because I think it's no exaggeration to say that radio has been notoriously sexist, racist, homophobic, like the, these are documented things. There have been, you know, studies and reports and, People have, you know, testified to this. Um, but but yeah, I think that the format doesn't make it any easier. Um, so it really does end up uh making it tough for a lot of artists. I mean, you would think that this is something that would have gotten better 
over time. Yeah, and it, ha- it hasn't. It hasn't. I remember that um, big country music report that was about uh, how country radio like will not play two women back to back. Um, and which involved like hundreds of hours of people like listening to the radio and noting these things down. Um, and that was, I think that was in like 2020, maybe that was a few years ago. Um, it does. Yeah. It it doesn't really feel like this stuff has gotten that much better. Which is so wild to think, because if you consume country music outside of country radio, I feel like it's the women in country music that would come to mind before most of the men in country music. Is this the same type of thing where how, for whatever reason, a song could be at the top of the Billboard Hot 100? And I know that that chart has changed a lot in terms of how a song gets there, but still there's some representation that there has to be enough people listening to this for this to have gotten there. And it just doesn't reflect that. Yeah. And I think maybe part of the reason it hasn't changed is um, when you are doing something a certain way and it's working, you're still getting advertisers. You still have your listeners based on incomplete measurements. Um, and the system is kind of working in that way. You That's the mold. And you don't feel like you should break out of the mold because then maybe it won't work anymore. Um, and I think that's not just uh, an issue in radio. I think it's an issue in the music industry in general and probably a lot of industries is like this uh, hesitancy to kind of try something new because it might not work um, the way that th- they feel everything in the past has. So, yeah, it's unfortunately still the reality. Before we um, before we close things out, I do want to talk quickly about some of the more non-commercial aspects of radio that I still do think have important roles in music, specifically the independent radio stations and these college radio stations too, because I think there's an aspect of reaching tastemakers and reaching people that are a, not just reaching, but you're able to broadcast and highlight artists that don't have the money or the promotional budget or the connections to get mainstream radio play even now, even though it's declining, but they can still get on some of these independent radio stations and in many ways, you could be reaching the next person that 15 years from now is running one of these major record labels, right? Maybe not 15, maybe more like 2025, but you just think about the time frame. Most of the people that are doing this stuff do it because they love it and they've had enough years in there and they were probably at some type of connection when they were quite young in that area. So I think there is an aspect of building some of those connections earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, I think of like Universal Music Group investing in NTS radio. Did you hear about this? I feel like it got like no, it got no coverage. It got no coverage. Um, I think I read about it in like a newsletter, um, but it wasn't really covered in, I think, you know, most of the mainstream publications. But UMG um, invested in NTS radio, which is based out of London, I believe. Um, and it's just an online radio station. And I'm a huge NTS fan. Um, I listen to it all the time. I listen to it when, to to our point, when I don't want to have to come up with, you know, curated listening experience, but I want it to be, I want to enjoy it. So when I'm working or when I'm having friends over and I don't have time to like think about what to play. Um, and I follow specific DJs and like, I like when they give their commentary over the tracks and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there is a big place for that. And it also, this is maybe like going rogue, but I just had this thought. Um, we do talk a lot at at Midia about just like the growth of music creators and people that kind of casually engage with music making or music remixing and how that's set to grow just because of how the barrier to entry keeps lowering and things like that. Um, and I sort of think the DJ community is going to become bigger and bigger and that that's, that's already like a really actually big sort of customer and consumer segment. Um, and there's sort of this almost like 
joke of like, oh, everyone's a DJ now. But I think that's true. And I think it's only going to become more true. Um, so sort of in the way that like a like title sort of seems to be catering to DJs as a customer segment, and it's sort of big enough that you could maybe do that as a niche company. But still, I feel like there's that um, NTS caters to DJs in that sense, too. And it's sort of like this, uh, it's a niche, but it's a it's a mighty one. Um, and it's I think it's getting bigger. Yeah, I think both with that and with just the local dynamics of radio and that everything else just in the industry has become so much more national, there still is value in trying to create that and identify with some of that culture when people are trying to connect in ways. Radio is always going to have a opportunity to do that where I think it's tough for the national shows and things like that too. So yeah. college DJs clearly have that and being able to tap in there. So I think as the industry does look at things, I probably wouldn't be surprised if we see more investments like that. So I guess before we close things out, is there anything else on radio that you wanted to talk through or that we should cover before we before we wrap things up? I actually feel like we covered everything. This was a great one. And it's funny you mentioned Elias. I feel like I so much of his reporting came up when I was um when I was doing my research for this and also like stories he's done on pale and things like that. So shout out Elias, friend of the pod. <laughs> One thing that I do want to call out of things, just looking forward to the future, because I think that's kind of how we always end these podcasts. Mm -hmm. I think 10 years from now, radio will still be here. It may look very different than it does now. It may be part of one of these broader conglomerates the same way that it still is, but I think it still will be here. But I am interested to see how this compensation debate continues to go. There were two uh, U.S. senators, uh, Padilla and Blackburn. They had pushed what they call the American Music Fairness Act, where they are trying to get more money in the performers and the recording artists' pockets for music specifically. So I'm very interested to see how that looks. And they have a very detailed thing where they want to be able to say, okay, if you're a station that makes less than $10 million in ad revenue, then they want you to pay at least $500 annually to those specific rights holders. So it may not sound like a lot, but when you look at the thousands of radio stations and you add them up, it'll be interesting to see how that works. And again, I think it's much less about trying to put money into the pockets of the biggest artist in the world, even though that's where most of it goes, but they do want to make sure that others get compensated. But on the flip side, we all we both know that that's where a lot of the airplay goes to. If you look at the airplay charts, it still is the biggest artist in the world, but um, either way, it would be cool to see that compensation happen. And I think there's plenty of ways to do it and plenty of ways to do it in a way that we can modernize some things from the 1909. <laughs> Shout out 1909 Copyright Act. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, actually, that um, I do think that radio will exist. Maybe not. Um, I think what will exist is the uh, I, format isn't the right word, but like the the style of having like talk radio plus music and the curation and the DJ. Like I think that that will still exist. I just don't know if it if it will be like AM FM, you know. But I think that that as a format is something that people do get all the things we've talked about out of. Um, it's just a matter of what does that actually look like in the digital age? Because. Clubhouse tried to go through some element of it, but we clearly see that didn't work. Amazon invested a lot of money into AMP. I think they had great people working on it, but that didn't work. So whatever it looks like still has value, but it still is. I mean, for what it's worth, I think what for both of those, what both of those things have in common is um, making the users, the creators, 
um, which is great. I don't want to like – like I think it's awesome to be able to empower the average person to like make a radio show. Um, but I also think going back to what we were saying earlier about like maybe we have enough on-demand experiences. Maybe we need more scarce ones. Maybe we also need more curation by people that have honed their craft and like this is their – this is their profession, you know? Um, I don't think that that's a, a bad thing or a bad thing to say. Um, so, you know, maybe that is something that was missing is there were all these people that were hosting their own shows, but there weren't enough people to to listen to them. Maybe, you know, we need fewer DJs and just, um, yeah. Qua- what is the quantity over quality? Quality over quantity. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting space to watch. Right. And specifically with those, anytime you're creating a new place for someone to go, it's always going to be a little tough. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But Tati, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me in person. This has been great. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.